0: Um, in one, chapter 1, 1 through 4, we see that there's this joy in fellowship, and that fellowship can be certain in verses 1 and 2, where John is defending the humanity of Christ. And then when we get to verse 3, we see that there's a call to have this fellowship with God and with each other. But then in verse 4, John says that when this happens, when we have true fellowship, there is this joy that comes about fellowship. But this evening, I want us to look at what John sees as authentic or genuine fellowship, and that is by the way we act and the way we believe. And this is what God's words teach us. So let us read the text, and then we'll dive deeply into this text to allow this text to, to impact our hearts and our minds to serve our holy and living God. This is the message If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. There is this story that is told of a young woman who uh, became saved and lived in her town and joined the local church, but eventually, due to her job, she had to move and relocate. Well, in the process of relocating, she obviously had to find a new church family to fellowship with and to grow in. And after several months of looking, she finally found a church she thought was a good fit. So she requested to join the church, and before they would let her join, just to make sure she was a believer and that you know, they lined up similarly in belief where it wasn't be something that would be cause strife within the church, they met with her. And during the questioning of seeing what she truly believed towards the end, uh, one of the old deacons asked, were you a sinner before you were saved? And the woman, kind of perturbed by this, thinking, well, everybody's a sinner. Ain't nobody's never sinned. He said, well, yes, I, I was in fact a sinner before I came to faith in Christ. Well, that old deacon then responded, are you still a sinner now that you are in Christ? And this young woman, taken aback by this question, paused for a brief moment. And eventually she responded, Well, I fear, and I don't really know how to explain it, but I fear that I am a far greater sinner now that I'm in Christ than I was before I was in Christ. The deacon then responded, Then what change has occurred in your life? Again, she paused. And she waited for a brief moment before responding. Again, I don't know how to explain it, but once I was a great sinner running towards sin, now I'm a sinner fleeing sin and running towards my Father, my Savior. And upon hearing that, the church leadership concluded that she was right for fellowship, and they welcomed her with open arms because she understood the truth of Christian life. That now that we are in Christ, we still have the sin affecting us, but instead of letting the sin control us, we flee from sin and run to the Father. That's what true fellowship looks like with God. That though we still face sin, we reject sin and go towards the Father. So this evening, I want to share with you the two characters of authentic fellowship with God. But before we begin that, I want to give you guys just an idea of what's going on in 1 John here. John is writing this towards the end of his life. By the time he is writing this epistle, he has already written his gospel account. It's likely already circulating among the churches. And he's pinning this, like I said, later in his life, earliest about 85 A.D. to maybe 90 A.D., that's when he's pinning these words. And John is writing to fellow believers. And he's writing to fellow believers to demonstrate to them to defend the truth, to live in fellowship with God, to have this understanding of who God is. And he understands that it's vital to know the truth, it's vital to live in Christ. But there are these opponents of the gospel that John is making a defense against, and they are known as the Gnostics. I'm sure we have covered this plenty of times here in this church, that these Gnostics, they would hold that all of material, all that is flesh is evil. They'd go as far as to say that Jesus Christ was not God incarnate because he had flesh, or on the other side they'd say that he was not came in the flesh but that while he was on the cross, he was merely a spirit floating in the air. But as we see just in the first few verses, that John does not believe that. And he argues that we should not believe that, but that Jesus Christ was both Son of God and man, that he was both fully God and fully man and one person. But now John is going further, and he is speaking to those who are believers. So what are these two characters of authentic fellowship? The first character we see of authentic fellowship is biblical behavior. Notice again with me the text. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I just want to briefly pause right there because what John is demonstrating is that his authority of teaching the truth does not originate with himself, but it originates with an author. And that author is not himself, but it's Christ. Just as much as today, we do not stand on authority of our own marriage, but we stand on what does God's Word say. One person puts it this way. Theology must always begin with recitation in which we examine and state clearly what God has already said in history. Church, we don't need any new revelation because what we have is the exact word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 explains that, that this is God's word. It's breathed out by God, and it's useful for doctrine, for reproof. Peter tells us that the Word of God did not come from human intuition, but it came through the moving of the Holy Spirit. The way that John is saying this, this is a message which we have heard from him. And as I hear that phrase, my mind goes to the way that Paul begins his epistle to the Galatians. This is the gospel It did not come from me, Paul. I did not go to Jerusalem and sit in the Jerusalem seminary for four years to get this gospel. No, this gospel came from Jesus Christ. Why? Because if we're going to stand on any authority, we need to stand on what God has said. Not what we have said, not what we have invented, but what has God said. So John, in defending of what authentic, biblical fellowship looks like, he begins. This is the message which we have heard from him. He's not arguing to his recipients. This is the message which you have heard from me. No, it's this is the message we, as a collective group, we have heard from Jesus Christ. So what is this message? He's proclaiming that God is light. Now briefly, I just want to, just want to give you guys an idea of what Paul, John is saying here. Because he says God is light. And I want us to understand that this is one of three descriptions that, God, that John gives of God. In John chapter 4, verse 24, John states that God is spirit. In 1 John 4, 8, John tells us that God is love. But we're not dealing with that God is spirit or God is love tonight. Tonight we are dealing with that God is light. So we must ask ourselves, what does it mean that God is light? Well, John even tells us what it means that God is light in the end of this verse. Because in God there is no darkness. This verse can be read this way. God is holy holy, and in him is no sin. God is pure, and in him is no defilement, because that's who God is. But this isn't the only time that John uses light to describe God or Jesus Christ. If you will, turn with me to the Gospel account of John. We'll begin in chapter 1. And you guys know this passes very well because the first verse, John, instead of defending his humanity, he is defending Christ's deity. That the Word of God came from God, the Word of God was with God, and the Word of God was God. But when we get to verse 4, notice what John says. Really, we can begin in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we see this, that in Jesus Christ is the light, and the light is the life. But we continue, because we also see that light signs in darkness. Notice in verse 5, and the light signs in darkness. But not only does the light sign in darkness, notice what the darkness does. The darkness does not comprehend the light. Not only that, but we also understand that there was this witness of the light. Verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. But we also see another characteristic of this light. And I'm sure you guys already caught it in verse 7. That all who believe in this light will be saved. But also notice in verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. All those that believe on Jesus Christ who is the true light will have eternal life. God is light. And if we understand because... We jump over, just turn over a few pages in John chapter 3. And you guys know this passage very well. This is where the most famous Bible verse in all of the world comes from, John 3, 16. But we get to the end of John and Nicodemus' discussion. In verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is a condemnation. Now get this, that the light has come into the world. What did we see in the first chapter of John already? The light is Jesus Christ that has come into the world and signs in darkness. But now John adds a little bit more detail. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and get this, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practices evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light. Lest his deeds should be exposed. Verse 23, but he who does the truth comes to the light and that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So we see What John is using in connection with God is light is he is defending the holiness of God, the sacredness of God. John's not the only one who sees this. Do you remember in Moses when he's coming off the mountain and and he wants to see the glory of God? Moses, you can't see my glory because if you would see my glory, you would be destroyed. But here's what I'll do. I'll, you get behind this rock, and I'll put my hand here. And when I walk by, you can see the back of my glory. Do you know what happened to Moses after he seen the glory of God? His face shone brightly. It was sown so brightly that when he entered into the camp of Israel... The people of Israel became afraid and they pleaded with Moses Moses, cover your face because we are afraid of you. So Moses hid his face. But you know, that glory that Moses seen, that made his face sign, was only temporary. Eventually it faded away. And you know what Moses did? He kept the veil over his face so people would still think he's holy. That he still had that part of that glory of God affecting him. But that's not what happened. That's not the only case that we see that God is holy. Remember in Isaiah, when we were studying Isaiah in the first couple chapters? Isaiah sits there and he sees the throne of God and he sees God sitting in all of his glories and all of his righteousness. Oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Pearing at the glory of God, the holiness of God. Light is the holiness of God. And darkness is sin. So now we continue. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and get this, and walk in darkness. In Ephesians 5, Paul also uses darkness. The word walk. And it means the way you conduct yourself in life. But what the way Paul uses it is if you walk in the light, you walk in love, and you walk in integrity. But here John is using it in the contrast. He say, he's saying if we say we have fellowship with God, if we say we're in cohort with God, but our lifestyle says that we are still in the world, notice what he says. We lie. And do not practice the truth. Church, this is why we must have a biblical lifestyle. But we must be wise before we go on to say we have to have a biblical lifestyle because we cannot say that the biblical lifestyle comes from my preference. The way I want to live biblically is the way that it is. That is not the case. Again, we return to verse 5. This is the message which we have heard. We must remember that the way we identify what biblical behavior is is based on what God has said. We don't base biblical behavior based on what I want God's Word to say. We base it on what does God say. if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But we must remember, as to why John is writing this, I stated this in the introduction, that John is writing this to defend the truth against the Gnostics. The Gnostics were those who claimed to have fellowship with God, but in all reality, they walked in darkness. But John is also saying, because notice, he uses... We. He doesn't say, now if you say you have fellowship with God and you don't have fellowship with God and you walk in darkness, you lie. No, notice what he says. He says, if we. He's lumping himself in there. He's saying, even if I, the great apostle John, you know, the one that you read about in John, the disciple that God loved, the son of God loved me more than all the other disciples, or at least that's the way I'm going to put the story. Even if I say... I have fellowship with God, but the way I live my life is in contrast to what God's Word says. I am proving myself to be a liar, and I do not practice the truth. He continues, verse 7, But if we walk in light as he is in the light, again, we see this holiness. Holiness. But again, we must not dictate our holiness based on personal preference or what we see on the outside, but what is going on on the inside. We have fellowship with one another. And notice towards the end, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Gary Burge on this section here, of discussing what it means to walk in light. He defines it as this. A good God expects good people. A God of light expects lives that are permeated by such light. In Leviticus, God is calling the people to be holy because he is holy. Now we pause and we go, well, that's Old Testament. That don't apply to us church. But you know Peter quotes that very same passage. Be holy as God is holy. But notice it's be holy as God is holy not be holy as so and so is holy. But we also understand and I think John is wise to put this here that just because we are called to be holy as God is holy, we cannot live up to that expectation. Because notice what John says here at the end. The blood of Jesus Christ, the son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Church, do you know that you are free from past sins? In Romans... Chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, if you want to turn there quickly, I think it would also be on the screen. Paul defines what it means to be declared clean from all past sins. Notice what he says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 1 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Because the therefore, it brings us to a head point. Because everything before this is mostly condemnation. Verse 4 starts to discuss the discussion of faith alone for salvation. And now Paul is telling us, therefore, we have been justified, which means to be made declared right before God. So that when God looks at us, he does not see us in our sinfulness, but he sees Jesus Christ. Because we understand that the Bible also tells us that when we come to faith in Christ and when we are saved, the righteousness of Christ is imputed. It's put on our account. So when we stand before God, we don't try to pay our way into heaven with our righteousness because we have no righteousness but we pay our way into salvation through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And right there, I mean, we can go through the whole thing, but even in verse 8, for God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. But we're also set free from present sins. If you will, turn over with me to Ephesians real fast. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Again, it will be on the screen. And this is also a well-known passage. But notice the wording that Paul uses here. Obviously we, all, we all know what he says in 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. But notice what 26 says. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word. Verse 27. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that seems to be holy and without blemish. But church... Not only are you declared clean from your past sins, not only are you being clean from your present sin, that we'll also see in verse 9 of the text we're looking at this evening, but God also declares us clean from future sins at a future point. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Just two verses here in Philippians. In Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it might be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So when we see in 1 John... Chapter 1, verse 7, at the end of the verse, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We can affirm that. We can affirm that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin because that's exactly what it does. You are clean from all sin. Romans Chapter 8 brings that out. He who he foreknew also sanctified and he glorified. We see this so beautifully throughout all scriptures that God, when he begins a work, he is faithful to complete that work in us. You know, church, there is not one promise that God has given that has not been fulfilled. Now, we can certainly say there are some promises that are not fulfilled yet. But God's record of keeping his promises is 100%. He has not felt a single one. So we can trust that the future events that he has promised will take place will, in fact, take place. That just as we see, he cleanses us from all sins. Yes, we can clearly see that he has cleansed us from our past sin and we are declared right before him. And he's even cleansing us now as we sin and we repent and come back into him. But we can also say with confidence that he will cleanse us from future sin, from the presence of sin. But this is not the only way that John brings about what authentic fellowship looks like. Because notice with me what the second character of authentic fellowship is, which is biblical belief. Notice in verse 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Church, before we dive into this, I want to say something very clear. The basis of our perfection is not in us. The basis of our perfection is only in Jesus Christ. Again, I want to make it clear because I'm going to read a a lengthy quote, and I'll pause throughout it to make some comments about this quote, but John is defending the truth against those who would believe that wisdom, not Jesus Christ, but wisdom is the way to salvation. But John says, Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ is the truth and Jesus Christ is the life. Verse 8, we say that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We say we have no sin. I want us to get a clear understanding of what John is saying here. Because this word is in the present active tense. What it means is there could be some that John is hearing say, and it's very likely, and this is why he's putting this in here, that are saying that now that I'm saved, I no longer sin. Because that's what it means. It's, it means, I am no longer sinning. But notice what he says. He says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But we jump down to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, now this is in the perfect tense. And I want us to understand this. That what John is saying here is that in verse 10, we say we never have tasted sin before in our lives. That's what it means in the present tense, that we have never, ever sinned. So verse 8, we claim we no longer sin that now that we're saved. Verse 10, we go even further. We say that we we don't even know what sin is because we never tasted it. Now I want to give you a brief history of what Gnostic would believe. The Gnostics believed, again, that the way the salvation is through this special wisdom, this knowledge, that's what saves us. And they would hold that the only people who could be saved are those who have the spark of wisdom. So it's very likely that verses 8 and 10 is against the Gnostics. And I want to read to you what a group... And get this church. There's this group that was founded in 1928 here in America. And you know what they call themselves? The Gnostics. I want to read to you their summary of what an early Gnostic thinker stated. This guy is by the name of Valentinus. And he lived between 100 to 180 A.D. He he was born shortly after John passed away. And get this. This is what they wrote concerning their doctrine of sin. The role of Jesus is to bring gnosis, which is knowledge of the Father, and thereby to remove sin. Okay, that seems okay. But listen as we continue. According to Theolotus, when the risen Christ breathed his spirit into the apostles, he blew away the dust, which is what they would call sin. And guess, this is what they call sin, ignorance. But church, I want us to understand that sin is not ignorance, but sin is active rebellion against God. So are you already picking up that these people believe that knowledge is the way to salvation because they just say that sin is just not knowing any better? He blew away the dust, which is ignorance, like asses, and removed it. But he kindled and made alive the sparks. The Savior is the one who takes away the sin of the world. And this came from Heroxelon, fragment 10. According to the Interpretation of Knowledge, which is one of their books that they would claim is inspired by God, this is what it says. When the great son, which they would claim would be Jesus, was sent after his little brothers, he spread abroad the edict of the father and proclaimed it, opposing all. And he removed the old bond of debt, the one of condemnation. And this was that edict. Those who reckon themselves slaves have become condemned in Adam. Now, I want us to pause right there. Did you hear that? Those that reckon themselves slaves have become condemned in Adam. Church, that is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we are all condemned already in Adam. They have been brought from death, received forgiveness for their sins and had been redeemed. Again, they go on. Gnosis, knowledge of the Father, removes the power of sin. Those who have knowledge are theoretically free from sin. The Gospel of Philip says, the one who has knowledge is a free person. But the free person does not sin, for the one who sins is a slave of sin. And here's the conclusion of, of this paragraph. Spiritual people, by definition, do not sin. Through knowledge, they die with regards to sin and are raised up again with Christ. And this comes from the excerpts of Theolotus 77 1. Again, they go on. Knowledge eliminates their inner demons and give them a pure heart, which allows them to leave, live and to lead a sinless existence. But we see in our text that John says the exact opposite of that. Because in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, if we say that we no longer sin because of Jesus Christ, we lie. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have never sinned before in our lives, notice what John says. We make a liar. Him. Him a liar. So the question is raised, how do we make him a liar? Because I want us to, and we won't look at every verse but I will give you the reference. But sin has a devastating effect on all things. We see that sin was introduced to the world in Genesis 3. Satan comes to Eve, has God really said that if you eat the fruit? But you know, the Bible tells us that Eve went even further. Eve says, oh, God said we can't even look at the tree. And Satan goes, well, look at it. Look, look, it's it's good food. It would nourish you. And and God, he's just pulling your leg. He does not mean that you're going to die. He's just afraid that you'll become a God just like he is. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. But do you know that sin brought the flood in Genesis 6? Genesis 6 tells us that when God looked at the people of earth, their hearts continually thought of evil. And God sent the flood to eradicate all but six humans because of sin. Genesis 19 Sin destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. We jump towards the Exodus, and we see that as the people of Israel come into Israel, the promised land, we hear this man named Achan. Now Achan, he is told, now we're going to go in and we're going to wipe these people out, and God doesn't want us to take anything of theirs. We're to destroy it all. Well, Achan goes in and he sees, oh man, we got some wealth here. We got some money. And what does he do? He takes it, which is absolutely foolish because he knows that he cannot use it because if he uses it, he'll be ousted as somebody who disobeyed God. So he hides it and he hides money that is useless. Well, what happens to Israel? They go into their next battle. The previous battle, God was mighty at work and defeated their enemies. This next battle, they lose decisively. Men are killed. I go to the Lord, Lord, what happened? We're your people we just went in. And it's revealed that there's somebody in the midst of the camp of Israel who has sinned against God. And you know what happened to Achan and his entire family because of his sin? They were all killed for sin. A similar story we see in Saul. Saul's told to destroy the enemy. He goes, he defeats them, and good old prophet Samuel comes by. Saul meets him. Saul, why do I hear animals I hear the animals. And what happens? Saul decided, well, I'm going to use, well, he lies. He tries to cover up his sin. I'm going to use these animals to sacrifice to the Lord. But that's not the case. Because you also know that Saul was commanded to kill the enemy king. And you know what Saul did? Kept him as a prisoner. Disobedience. And you know that the disobedience of Saul Ended not only his life, because later on he decides, instead of seeking after God the right way, he decides to go to a medium to conjure up Samuel to go to God. And it said, your life and your son's life will be mine today. Sin killed Saul and his sons. But Saul wasn't the only king who was ungodly. Because we also see with David, it's the time of war. Now David's at home. The Bible doesn't tell us why he's at home. But what we do know is David is at home and he becomes a peeping Tom. And not only does he become a peeping Tom, he acts on his lust. Well, now it's going to become evident that he is an adulterer because he slept with another man's wife and she's pregnant. So what does he do? Well, let's bring bring him home. Now, you go home, you've you've been out on war all this time, you go spend time with your wife. But what the Bible does tell us is that that man was more godly than David because he didn't even want to go because he was supposed to be fighting. So David comes up with another plan send them to the front line to cover up the sin but do you know that even david couldn't hide cuz nathan the prophet comes about and he says, he gives this elaborate story to david david there's this rich man he had all types of sheep and there's this poor man who only only had enough money to buy one little lamb well, some guests of the rich man came into town, and the rich man decided he wasn't going to use his lambs, so he's going to take the poor man's lamb. David becomes furious, and Nathan goes, You are the man. David repents, but because of his sin, a child is lost. That's not the only time. There's another time. David is not to count the men of Israel. He's not to count his forces and how strong Israel is, but he disobeys and he counts the people and men, thousands of people are killed because of David's sin. Sin has a devastating effect. It's said, you know, sin takes us farther than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and leaves us abandoned. But do you know that we are all natural-born sinners? I already mentioned this one, but Jeremiah seventeen nine tells us this. Psalms 51, 5, 58, 3, and we can even see it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Because in sin we are dead, but through the grace of God and through salvation we are made alive to God. But we were all accursed because of the sin nature that is in us. But church, do you know that it was sin that took Jesus to the cross? We see that in Romans 5, 8. But why? We were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. But did you know that the plan of the cross was always plan A in in the eyes of God? If you will, turn with me to Acts real fast. In Acts 2, verse 23... This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. And listen what he says Him, which is Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 22, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. The plan of the cross was always plan A. So you know what that tells us? God is so gracious that he knew that Adam and Eve would fall and sin. God is so gracious that when David falls, David is not abandoned from the covenant. God's grace is mighty, and it it can affect us. But yet, we still struggle with sin. Because even though we are saved, we can't say, as in verse 8, that we no longer sin. Because Romans 7 refutes that. Paul says, I don't know what's going on, but the very thing I want to do, I don't do. But the thing that I do do is not the thing I want to do. Who can redeem this wicked man? And Paul's answer, Jesus Christ can redeem the wicked man. But in between verse 8 and verse 10, these two negatives of never sinning ever again now that we're in Christ and never having sinned before, John gives us a positive. Notice what he says. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. And you church, you know that this word confess means that if we say the same thing as what God says about our sin, that God is faithful. God has found faithful in forgiving our sins. Just as I said, God has not let one promise of his go astray. So we can trust him with this. But I want us to understand that often his faithfulness is in connection with his salvific purpose. One person notes it this way. God's faithfulness is usually connected with His gracious promise of salvation. But we also see in our text that God is just. God is just and He's faithful. God is just and enacting judgment against sin, but He's also faithful in forgiving sinners. These two attributes of God are not at war with each other, but they are in connection with each other, and it's only through the purpose of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ becomes the just and the justifier. Jesus Christ bore the sin. He bore the wrath of God for you and I. God's wrath was satisfied with the atoning death of Christ on the cross. God's wrath is not satisfied with how good you are. God's wrath is not satisfied with how faithful you attend church. God's wrath is not satisfied by how faithfully you give to the church. God's wrath is only faithfully satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. That's why when we read in verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Because that's exactly what it does. It cleanses you and I from all sin, and it makes God faithful to forgive us of our sins. Danny A- Daniel Aikens puts it this way, God is able and righteous and forgiving because these sinners will have confessed their sins and trusted in the re- God's revelation of eternal life in Jesus, his son, whose death is the basis of forgiveness. Again, church, the basis of our perfection, the foundation of our perfection is not in us, and it cannot be in us, but it can be in Jesus Christ. We just have to place our faith in Him. Sin still affects our lives. We see that in Romans. We even see this here because, again, verse 9, if we, not if you who are sinners and and lost, no, John says if we sin into one, He says, I write this so you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate, one who pleads our case before the Father. We have hope even in the midst of our struggle with sin, not because of us, but because of the faithfulness and the grace of God. So why is John writing this? John is writing this not just for his readers in his time but for us he's writing it to motivate his readers into genuine fellowship with god so we ask the question why should authentic fellowship matter to me why should authentic fellowship matter to me the day who lives in the 21st century i don't live in the first century as john did Authentic fellowship matters because it pleases God, but it also reveals genuine faith because we place our faith in God when we confess our sins and his promises that he will forgive us of those sins. So as we review before we close, what were the two characters characters of authentic fellowship? The first character we see in of authentic fellowship is biblical living in verses 5 through 7. And then the second character of authentic fellowship is biblical belief, verses 8 through 10. There's the story of this captain of this battleship. And he's sailing through the sea at night, and he sees off in the distance this light. So he radios in. Turn 10 degrees north. The other response. Turn 10 degrees south a little perturbed by this because he's a captain of a battleship, he responds, turn 10 degrees north. I am the captain. The other one returns. Turn 10 degrees south. I am seaman third class John. By this point, the captain is beyond mad. He's ready to blow the other place out of the water. So he responds one last time. I am the captain of a battleship. You are required to obey my command. Now turn 10 degrees to the north. The response from the other. 10 10 degrees south, I am a lighthouse. So the question we ask ourselves, are we too focused on ourselves that we do not see the shipwreck that's ahead of us? Are we too proud in ourselves? Or are we going to relieve the command of ourselves to the one who has all authority? Are we going to live in authentic fellowship with God by relieving our personal preference to live according to what God has said and to believe in His faithfulness? May I challenge you tonight, church, to live in faith, in the promises of God, and to live a life that honors what the Bible says. Because the Bible tells us this, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word will remain. And our lives are going to be dictated by what God says. So let us pray before we close tonight. Our Heavenly Father,